tap, tap, tap. Billy was lying on his back, twisting like a corkscrew down the narrow coal seam he was mining. Half on his back, half on one side, tapping away at the rock just above his head. Pitch black. Save for the tallow candles flickering, butter-coloured flame casting fractured shadows on the rock face. Tap, tap, tap. We, the Jaya, are alarmed. We all move closer. We all dive in and surrender. We feel Billy's ache in his arm, in his chest, in his shoulder. We feel the panic rise in response to his mind shaft enclosure. He calls out to his best mate, his Mara, and we hear his call bounce and ricochet back down the main shaft and merge and mingle with the great clanking cacophony of all the men, dads, uncles, granddads, even the boys like him, all hammering and bashing away at the rock face. Billy listens and waits for his Mara's reply. We wait and listen, sift through the sounds, wondering what has caused the alarm to be raised to such a high level. Billy listens deeper and deeper till he hears the reply from his mate, his Mara, working in his own tiny tunnel. Billy starts bashing away at the rock again, tap, 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 tap. But the usual calling out of his marrow hasn't helped. We feel the flames rise inside him. Something is riling him, making him mad, making him sweat and clench his jaw, grind his teeth together. Something about feeling squashed, something about being crushed and confined, something about slithering, having to scrape himself along the narrowing tunnel. His eyes are stinging. He wants to smash this rock good and proper. We tense too, feeling each grudge grow stronger. His breathing is fast and shallow. He'll smash this rock. He'll bash it all right. And with all his might, he'll crack this rock. Tap, tap, boom. A deafening but distant boom stopped Billy in his tracks, dead. His eyes darted this way and that, like he was looking for something, but he wasn't looking, he was listening. He listened for a shout, a cry, anything. He held his breath, his heart was pounding. He felt the sweat on his back turn cold and shivering. The candle flickered, he began to shake, or he thought he did, but it wasn't him that was shaking. The mine shaft walls, ceilings and floors began to shake, then began to rock, rock violently. The rock began to tear itself apart. The rock itself was saying, enough of your bashing and tearing and grabbing. The rock itself was crashing down. The wind that blew from the main shaft turned into a storm that plunged Billy into a swirling mass choking dust and darkness. Billy scrambled back down his tiny tunnel, then slid, then fell, then landed in a heap on the floor of the main shaft. A heavy weight of darkness fell upon him. Billy fumbled for the rain track and laid himself on it, panting, gasping for breath, choking, panicking, 
cold, smooth metal rails reassured him. He would be alright as long as he held on to the rails. He was breathing in clouds of heavy coal dust. He was coughing and couldn't catch his breath. His ribs expanded and contracted like giant bellows. If he followed the rail track, they'd take him back. He'd get out. He'd be safe. It was so dark, so thickly black, he couldn't see his hand held up in front of his face. He shouted, Anyone there? Hello? Hello? We were close enough to touch him, to whisper in his ear. Shock and trauma can do this, connect us across time and space, so we are closer than your breath. And this shock was rippling out at an unprecedented speed. He heard the Jaya speak to him, and our voice calmed him. We felt his heart rate lessen and his breathing soften. We could taste the coal in the air, thick and choking in his throat. He dug around in his pocket and found a stub of a candle and struck a match once, then twice, then finally got it alight, casting a pool of golden light into the swirling dust and darkness. He began crawling on all fours, following the rail track, carrying the candle in one hand. He soon came to a collapsed heap of rock that blocked the whole tunnel from top to bottom. He listened as far and as wide as he could, but could hear no sound from anywhere. He turned around and made his way back to where he'd begun, then carried on crawling the other way, following the track deeper into the mine. He coughed and we coughed. It felt like his lungs might turn themselves inside out. He coughed and turned his head to the side so he wouldn't blow out the candle, and there he saw flickering in between the shadows on the side wall of the rock, a hole, not much bigger than him. He held the candle out at arm's length and peered inside. He could just see far enough inside the hole to see that it stretched some way in, then seemed to turn to the left. Billy sniffed and sniffed again. He knew that smell. He felt a cool draught of clean air blow against his cheek. The last of the wax ran down his finger. He dropped the candle and the darkness swirled around him again like a cloak. He felt for the edge of the hole then crawled into the tunnel. He squeezed himself between two narrow flat rocks that scraped the skin off his ribs and crushed the air out of his lungs. He dragged himself, crawled, scrambled and squeezed himself further and further along the tunnel, further and further, following the fresh, clean air, till suddenly he was able to get to his feet. He was able to crouch and move faster, his feet falling over each other. Then he saw shadows, a light up ahead. He raced on and fell and crawled on his knees and scrambled, till finally he fell onto a smooth and shiny floor. He wiped his face and coughed and spluttered. He blinked and held up his hand to shield his eyes from the blinding light. He was in a large room with steps ahead of him and rope rails to hold on to. The lights were brighter than any light he'd ever known. 
Billy ran up the steps two at a time and came out into a room with glass cabinets full of model mine engines and mining tools. He looked at some of the things in the cabinets and caught his reflection in the glass. He looked as black as a chimney sweep's boy. He span round when he heard a booming voice saying, Are you lost, son? Billy stared and blinked at the old man dressed like the pit gaffer. Before Billy could speak, the old man ushered him towards the door and directed him further up the street. I thought you'd all left, the man said. You better hurry up if you want to catch them. They're heading up to the schoolhouse, just up there on the left. On you go, son. You don't want to be late. Billy ran up the street. His boots made a clattering clank on the smooth surface of the road. As he passed the church, he saw a group of children all filing into the school gates. He glanced across the road to the terrace of Miners' cottages with plumes of smoke rising steadily from the chimneys. He caught the tail end of the line of children and tried to catch his breath. A woman holding the door smiled at him and said, Ready for the Victorian school? Then pulled a funny sort of smile. Billy lined up with the other children, boys on one side, girls on the other. The boy next to Billy was dressed just like him, flat cap, tatty old jacket, cord trousers and hobnail boots. But the boy's face was soft and whiter than any face Billy had ever seen. The boy had a smudge of brown rubbed onto each cheek and he smelt. Billy gave him a sniff but made sure no one was looking. The boy smelt sweet, a very sickly sort of sweet. He noticed all the boys in the line were dressed the same as this one, all with those smudges on their cheeks. Then he noticed the girls all had long dresses, boots and bonnets and had the same smudges on their cheeks. He looked at their hands and fingers and had never seen such clean nails. The door at the end of the corridor opened and the headmaster shouted down the line to see if the class were ready to come in. Billy straightened himself up and said, Yes, sir, as quickly and as sharply as he could. But the other children just giggled and looked round at each other, smirking. Billy panicked. This was not good. He stood even straighter and taller so the headmaster would see that at least he was behaving himself. They were put into rows, each child standing behind a desk. Then they were told to sit down. The headmaster walked up and down, waving his cane. Billy sat at the front of the class. He liked this classroom. It had a roaring fire and a huge map of the world on the wall. He began to feel warm and a little sleepy. The headmaster said, Do you know who this is? And pointed his cane at the picture of the Queen. Billy shot his hand up. Yes, the headmaster said, looking down his glasses at Billy. That's our Queen, sir, Queen Victoria. Correct, young man. And what's your name? Billy, sir. Well, Billy, do you know when Queen Victoria was alive? Billy was taken aback, but he knew he'd better speak up quickly. Yes, sir. She's alive now, sir. Everyone laughed. Billy panicked, but the headmaster wasn't cross about the children laughing. The headmaster, in fact, was smiling and chuckling himself. Well, not quite, he said then addressed the whole class. Queen Victoria lived from 1819 to 1901, and as head of the British Empire, he pointed to the map on the wall, she ruled over a quarter of the world's population. Billy slumped in his seat and looked down at his writing desk. We felt this drop, 
like a heavy stone dropped in water. We tracked his body shutting down and his thoughts falling till they landed inevitably at the bottom of the ocean. He thinks he's dreaming. He must be dreaming. He didn't go to school. He'd left school and was working down the pit. It must be a dream, he told himself. I must have had a bump on the head or breathed in too much coal dust. Billy felt under his cap to see if he had any bumps on his head. The children filed out of the classroom and into the schoolyard. Billy took himself off to one side, away from the others. One of the teachers came up to him. It's Billy, isn't it? Yes, miss, he said, without looking at her. You've really gone to town on being a Victorian, haven't you, Billy? She said in a kind, soft voice. Billy looked round at her. How do you mean? Well, you're taking it all very seriously about Queen Victoria. Billy felt his cheeks burning red. He began to feel dizzy. He felt himself staring but couldn't look away. As he looked into her eyes, they seemed to fill with thousands of stars, galaxies spiralling. He was becoming entranced. We moved forward to try and protect him. We reached out to stop him becoming beguiled. He was looking up into the teacher's face. Her skin was so smooth and soft, he wanted to cry. One of the other children ran across and shouted, Miss, Miss, you've got to come. Kai's hit William, Miss. She pulled at the teacher's arm. Miss Carter, William's crying. Miss Carter held Billy's gaze for a second longer, and in that second, he knew that as she looked at him, she saw the thousands of stars as well. She frowned slightly and was going to say something, but then she turned and walked over to the crowd of children. We were taken aback. We'd never seen such a strong, spontaneous interaction, a connection like this, not even in the sleep lab, not even after months of preparation, no screening had thrown up such open receptivity. Billy looked at the children, looked at each child in detail, then at each teacher, then at the school, the bricks, the roof, the windows, all clean, cleaner than clean. Even the ground itself was clean, and the church opposite the school was clean. And then he looked up into the bright blue sky. It was bluer than blue. It was a blue he'd never seen before. He leant his head back and breathed in the cool, crisp air. Then, when he'd sat there and thought about all of this for long enough, he went over to Miss Carter, the teacher, who had thousands of stars in her eyes. Miss Carter, he said, am I dead? Is this heaven? <laughs>